I ask that you now turn in your copies of God's Word to 1 Timothy, the first, first chapter. As we focus together on verse 15, I would like to read, beginning in verse 12 through verse 17. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. Let us bow before the Lord before reading. Our Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit will now illumine the page of Scripture. This word given by divine inspiration, that our hearts may be opened to the truth of this text, that your people may be built up in the faith, that we may rejoice once again in who Christ is and what he has done for us, And that the lost who may have come into this gathering with your people, who are estranged from Christ, may be by your Spirit drawn to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. We ask this in the name of Christ, the Head and King of his Church. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. This is the Word of God. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, Be glory, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I would ask that you look again at verse 15, which is the focus of the sermon this morning. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Or as the authorized version puts it, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. This is an excellent text to help us focus at this season of the year upon why Christ came. We think of the birth, we think of the manger, all the events that surrounded his birth, the star of Bethlehem, the shepherds. But the question that always needs to be asked and answered is, why did he come? And again I say, verse 15 is an excellent text, or helping us to understand the reason for his coming. It is one of the faithful sayings of the pastoral epistles. There are five of them. You can simply trace out your cross-references later. In 1 Timothy and in Titus and 2 Timothy, these faithful sayings that we find in Paul's pastoral epistles. These were quotations, undoubtedly, of early church sayings that were spread from mouth to mouth among Christians in that era. They were sort of Christian axioms that were passed from person to person, perhaps even sung in some of their hymnody. 
A wonderful thing it would be, don't you think, if we would take upon our lips verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and we would speak that encouraging word one to another now, that we would pass these things on to our children now, that these words would become so much a part of their, their lives at home that even down to old age, they would be repeating these words in this church and passing these wonderful truths down to their children as well. So this is the first of the faithful sayings. And the thing I want us first to see in this first faithful saying is that the text points us to Christ Jesus. That's the first thing. The text points us to Christ Jesus. That's the way Paul puts it. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. And of course, Christ Jesus means anointed one. Christ is a messianic title. It points to the fact that at his baptism, he was anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill the earthly task given to him by his father. The name Jesus, you will remember, is the name that God gave to him at his birth. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Christ also is a word, a name, that, as we see in Scripture, becomes synonymous with his deity or points to his deity. The fact that Jesus is God. Indeed, when he is baptized and the Spirit of God comes upon him in his anointing, God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus attests to his full humanity. And so we see right from the start that the Apostle Paul has in his mind the person of Christ, which is the basis of his work. That it's who he is that enables him to accomplish what he accomplished for us. That's why we recite the Nicene Creed at this time of the year. The great battle in the early church was the battle for the biblical understanding of the person of Christ so that we might understand that he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And so the Apostle Paul wants us to understand who he is. He is Christ, he is deity, he is Jesus, he is man, he is the God-man. And Paul's proclamation to me is a marvelous thing. I don't know if you ever think about it, but I do frequently when I read the, the epistles of Paul. The fact that this man who hated the Lord Jesus Christ, who despised his church, now proclaims Christ Jesus as the Savior of sinners is a marvelous thing. That he understands who he is and understands what he has come to do is a marvelous thing. Do you know that? Do you understand who Jesus is? Christ Jesus, the Anointed One. That's the first thing we see. The second thing in the text that I want us to see is what Christ did. So we ask the question, what did Christ do? Well, the text answers that. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came. He came. He came, which reflects the language of John's gospel. Now, New Testament scholars of all stripes are agreed that this fateful saying, this axiom, this quotation is the language of John's gospel. It is the language, it is Johannine language that was passed around from mouth to mouth in the church. As a matter of fact, this very expression, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, is found several times or something very close to it in John's gospel. And so as we unpack the Apostle Paul, we have to also think about John, and we ask the question of John's gospel, he came from whom? And the answer to that is he came from his father. 
His Father sent him into the world. We know from John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, that the one who became incarnate is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who had always been in perfect fellowship with the Father. This is the one who came. He came from his Father. He came from where? John's Gospel tells us he was sent, and he was sent from heaven. That in the eternal plan of God, there was this marvelous covenant of redemption in which the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit determined that they would save a people. The Father choosing them, the Son coming to die for them, the Holy Spirit applying the gospel of grace to their hearts. And so we have in John's gospel this emphasis on the fact that he came from and was sent from heaven into the world. But he came to where? To where did he come? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. And when we look at John's gospel, we find that there's a constant emphasis upon the fact that he came into the world. And usually when men read that, they think, oh, the teeming millions, how many are those for whom he came? But that's not what John has in mind at all. He is not thinking in those terms. When he uses the term world, he has something ethical in mind. When he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, he's not saying, look, he came for teamless millions. He is saying to us, he came into a rebellious province of Jehovah. He came into an ugly, noisome place that was filled with sin and defilement and guilt He came into that world of sin, that world that was rebellious against God. That's the marvel of it, don't you see? That he came, he did not come into a pristine world. He did not come into an unfallen world. But he was sent by his Father into the world of sinners like you and like me. Wondrous thing. What did Christ Jesus do? He came into the world. But then thirdly, I want you to see this. For what purpose did he come? Well, read again the the text, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now the Greek New Testament actually puts the emphasis on the word sinners. Sinners to save is actually the way it reads in the Greek text. Now here we have two words, don't we? Two words, sinners and saved, And I'm told that it's not polite to use those words nowadays. I am told that it's not posh to use those words nowadays. It's not sophisticated to say to people, you're sinners. It's not sophisticated to say to people, you need saving. You know, when I was a boy, you would frequently hear the question, are you saved? When someone would actually be converted by the work of the Holy Spirit, they would say, God saved me from my sin. You rarely hear that in professing evangelical churches today. It's just not considered something that is sophisticated or polite. But here it is in the text. Sinners, Christ, Jesus came to save. And when the Apostle Paul says sinners, he means those who are fallen in Adam, that when Adam sinned, all of his posterity sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Paul makes that plain in Romans chapter 5. And he also has in mind the actual sins, rebellion, the actual transgressions that come from our own heart. 
Paul would have us to know that God hates sin. All that is contrary to his bright and light nature. All that is contrary to his beauty and to his holiness. And that therefore we by nature are under his condemnation and under his wrath. And so elsewhere Paul describes sinners as dead in trespasses and sins. He says that we were enemies of God. He says that by nature we hate God. You may say, now pastor, that goes too far. I never hated God, but indeed you did if you were outside of Christ. You may not have hated your view of God, but the God of the Bible who is holy and just and righteous and loving and good, that God you did hate outside of Christ. Paul tells us that we are rebels who have turned from the true and the living God. And you had better know it. You had better know this because he only saves sinners. He didn't come into the world to save good people. He did not come into the world to save the righteous, but those who were lost in their sins. He came for sinners. But also we have this word save, with all of its rich Old Testament imagery, the way in which Jehovah only is the Savior of his people, Christ Jesus came to save. Now let's take the name Christ Jesus and connect it to this word save. Christ Jesus is a summary for the necessity that the Savior be God and man. That atonement for sin requires that God become man because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God and there is an infinite penalty that must be paid. Now, if the divine and human do not constitute one individual person, then all that Jesus did was simply as a man and this would be insufficient for saving sinners. The God-man, two distinct natures in one person forever, this union of the two natures in one person is essential for our redemption, essential if he is the one who will pay our penalty upon the cross. What I want you to see from this text is that when Paul the Apostle says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners... That the Apostle Paul is not just mouthing words, but he is saying to us, without Christ, our state is hopeless and helpless. Do you see why I'm so keen to defend the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ and to keep it ever before our eyes, to placard it before us in preaching the word? Because despite what you and I may believe about ourselves, we need saving. We are so sinful that we cannot even believe and repent unless he give us a new heart by his Holy Spirit and grant us the gift to believe and to repent. And so do not attempt to mix works and grace in this matter. Christ Jesus came to save no one but sinners. Only those guilty can know the value and the power of the cross of Christ Only those who know themselves to be sinners can know what it means that our sins are forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus. And so let us be crystal clear about this matter. Morality contributes absolutely nothing to the salvation of the soul. Nothing. Do you see that? Do you understand that apart from Christ, by nature, you are guilty and deserving of his infinite displeasure? absolutely hopeless, hopeless without a finished salvation. You are awfully, terribly, infinitely lost without Christ who made an atonement for sin on the cross. 
This is how God works in the heart, most often to show men that they are sinners. You know, if you've read Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners by John Bunyan, he was under such a load of guilt within his heart that he said, I envy the toad on the road, the frog. I envy the toad because at least that creature has not rebelled against his God. He used to love to, to take a part in the community ringing the bell and helping to keep time in Bedford. But he said, you know, I, I, I can't do that anymore because what if the beam broke and the bell fell and I were killed, I would go into a Christless eternity. And so it went until he understood by the grace of God guilt upon guilt upon guilt and his need of a Savior. I was rereading the other day the autobiography of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he begins a chapter about his conversion by saying, My heart was fallow and covered with weeds, but on a certain day the great husbandman came and began to plow my soul. Ten black horses were his team, and it was a sharp plowshare that he used, and the plowers made deep furrows. The Ten Commandments were those black horses, and the justice of God, like a plowshare, tore my spirit. I was condemned, undone, destroyed, lost, helpless, hopeless. I thought hell was before me. Then there came a cross plowing. For when I went to hear the gospel, it did not comfort me. It made me wish I had a part in it, but I feared that such a boon was out of the question. The choicest promises of God frowned upon me, and his threatenings thundered at me. I prayed, but found no answer of peace. It was long with me thus, until God showed him ultimately what it meant that he was a sinner, and then, by the grace of God, he heard the good news of Jesus Christ to the saving of his soul. I can say the same in my life, young people. That as a boy, I had dreams about the judgment of Almighty God, and I began to understand by the Spirit of the Lord my awful sin and the awful depth of my depravity, and that I needed a Redeemer, I needed a Savior. Do you understand that? That the atonement, His work on the cross, is your great need. You know, the atonement undoubtedly is one of the greatest proofs of Scripture of its inspiration, because man would never have come up with it. Man would never have come up with that at all. Man would have come up with some system of salvation. Oh, I'm a sinner needing saving, but, you know, I can contribute to it. I can do something. Never would man have come up with the fact that God must become man and go to a cross and pay the penalty for sinners. Never. You find that only in Holy Scriptures. And so, sinners and salvation. It may not be polite. It may not be posh, it may not be sophisticated, but that's what we need to hear. We are sinners in need of a Savior, and Christ only is that Savior, and only is that Redeemer. There is no other. But then, I want you to see fourthly, that this gospel message, this Christmas message, if you will, is doubly commended by Paul the Apostle. Look at the text again, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy or faithful and deserving of full acceptance. You see the double commendation. It is a faithful saying, says Paul. He commends this Christian axiom that was going around the church, perhaps being sung in their hymns, by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is inspired and a part of Holy Scripture. 
And what God is saying when he says that this saying is faithful is that behind this is my own faithfulness. This is my word to you. My faithfulness is behind the faithful sayings. Do you doubt it? I'm faithful. My word is faithful. My truth is faithful. My character is faithful. My promise is faithful. God's grace is greater than your sin. Do you believe it? Because it is a faithful saying, I keep my word. I keep my promise. If you believe in me, you have everlasting life. It's as if the Lord God reaches down to doubters in our midst. And he says, do you doubt? You need to hear this word is a faithful saying. Behind it is all of my faithfulness. Receive it. Believe it. And then he commends the the saying not only by reminding us that it's faithful, but it's worthy of acceptance. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It is worthy of acceptance, worthy of your personal faith, worthy of personal application to your heart, worthy of believing and embracing, worthy of complete wholehearted acceptance. Literally, it says all acceptance. Acceptance that is wholehearted is what Paul means. You will never find later that it was not what God told you it would be, that he is somehow not keeping his word, that somehow the gospel is not what you thought it was. Never will a person who trusts in Christ and believes his gospel, never will that gospel let him down. It is worthy of acceptance. And it is worthy, let me tell you, my friend, it is worthy in light of eternity to come. Because I often am moved by the truth and reality within my own soul as I preach the gospel of grace every week. That everyone to whom I preach and I with you will spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. Everyone who is here. Everyone on the globe will spend an eternity either in heaven or in hell. Someone says, no, I won't. I don't believe that. You do. Eternity is written on your heart. You do know that that's true. You suppress it in your sin, but you know deep down that what I'm saying is true. You will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And in view of eternity, this text comes and it says to us, it is a faithful saying, it is worthy of acceptance. In view of eternity, do you still think you have no need? Why the scourge? Why the nail prints? Why the spear? Why the substitutionary atonement? Why the blood on the cross? Why the cross, my friend? It is because you will spend somewhere in eternity. And God saves his people through the shed blood of that one that was born in a manger long ago. The gospel is doubly commended to you this morning. This good news about Jesus is a faithful saying. You can believe it. You can bank on it. It is worthy of acceptance, full of infinite worth because of the value of Christ who is preached through it. But someone here needs more encouragement still. Let me then take you, fifthly, to the great encouragement of our text. The great encouragement of our text, and it's found again here in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. 
or as the authorized version says, of whom I am chief. Paul's memory is working here. You know, memory can be a terrible thing, can't it? We don't like to think back upon our sins, do we? Memory can be an awful thing when I think back on how I rebelled against God and how I harmed my neighbor. Memory can haunt, taunt. Memory can torment a man or a woman so that you don't sleep at night because your conscience is guilty. That shows that you need a savior, you need a redeemer. It's no good painting a pretty picture. A dunghill remains a dunghill no matter how it's perfumed. That's the human heart apart from Christ. He came for sinners. So Paul remembers and he turns his memory into an encouragement. And you know what that encouragement is? God saved me, says Paul. And he describes in verses 12 to 14 his life of sin outside of Christ. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor of the church. I was insolent. I was an opponent of God and his truth. But in verse 13 he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy, but I received mercy, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. God took pity on Paul, the blasphemer, the persecutor, the insolent opponent of Christ Jesus. Ignorance did not make Paul worthy. His ignorance was sinful ignorance. He thought he was doing God a favor. He was blind, ignorant, he was bigoted. And in this state, he was an object of mercy. Not because he deserved it. He deserved nothing like that. He deserved God's infinite displeasure. But he obtained mercy. He did not deserve mercy. And he says, now, the encouragement to you is simply this. God saved me, and I was the chief of sinners. You think you're a sinner? I was the chief of sinners. The Apostle Paul is not motivated by false humility here. He doesn't expect you to come and say, now, Paul, that's not true. And he'll say, oh, well, maybe it's not. There's no false humility here. Paul means what he says. Look down through the centuries and you see the sinners that have raised their hands in rebellion against God. And Paul says, from my heart, I truly believe I'm the chief. Who was like me persecuting the church of God, destroying men and women who believed in Jesus Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? That was me. I persecuted Christ in his people. And he remembers the sins of his life. And so in another place in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3, 8, he says, I am the, the, the less than the least of the saints. And he means it. He means it. This is how Paul viewed himself. And then he says to us, now, now look at me. Not because of any worth, not because of any desert on my part, not because of anything I've done, but for his sheer mercy, I am now a trophy of grace. And he tells us in verse 16, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
a sort of type. That's what my life is, a, a, an example to you all to show you that if he can save me, the persecutor, blasphemer, insolent opponent, he can save you. If he can save me, he can save any sinner, no matter who he may be. Now you make the personal application as I have this week. Because if you came to me and said, I'm the chief of sinners, we might have a fight on our hands. As I look back in my life, I'm little, but I'm feisty. (laughs) And I might say, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm the chief of sinners. You will say, no, I am. No, I am. Well, Paul says he is. And that's the encouragement to the heart and to the soul. Are you amazed at his patience? I'm amazed that when I was a boy, rebelling against God and had all sorts of evil just teeming in my heart and in my mind, that at 13 years old, God saved me rather than sent me to hell. I'm amazed at his patience. When I was a boy out of Christ, I'm telling you, my sins were just mounting up. You just don't know. On the outside, I looked like the good little moral boy that I was brought up to be. Hatred of God, hatred of man, bitterness, rancor, strife. He saved me. Paul says he saved me. He can save you. And so don't fall into this trap of saying, I'll do half and Christ can do the rest. That's a formula for doom. No, you look to Christ alone, for only he can save sinners. Grace came to Paul. He could never have escaped God's wrath on his own. Listen to me and listen well. Someone out there is dishonoring Christ because you believe your sins are too great for him to forgive. You dishonor the blood of the Lamb. You dishonor what Christ did on the cross. You deny the sufficiency of his atonement. You say, my sins are just too great. He can save others, but he can't save me. You dishonor Christ when you say, my sins are too great to be forgiven. That's what Paul is saying. He saved me, the chief of sinners. He can save sinners like you. He came for sinners, not good people. Christ Jesus His person gives his work infinite power to save all who trust in him. Now, as soon as a man is saved, what will he do? You know the answer to that question. It's found here in our text as well. As soon as a man is saved, what will he do? This is the sixth and final thing. He will praise God. That's what he will do. What does Paul do? He says, I was a blasphemer. I was an insolent opponent. Christ came to save sinners. I was cheap. He saved me. And what does he do? He can't help himself. In verse 17, he says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know what that is? That's a doxology. Just as when we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And we should sing it from the heart. We should sing it loudly. He's praising God because he saved me. I can't get over what he's done 
to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Says Paul the Apostle, when a man, a woman, a child is converted to Jesus Christ, he praises God. Paul loses himself in contemplation of the triune God who saved him. He glorifies God and his attributes because true salvation, listen, true salvation turns us Godward. I mentioned I was rereading Spurgeon's autobiography, portions of it. And he made a statement again with which I, I can identify. I'll bet you can too. It's true for all Christians. Spurgeon said, I must confess that I never would have been saved if I could have helped it. That's right. We didn't want God. That's why it's amazing. I was a blasphemer, an insolent opponent. I didn't want the God of the Bible. I must confess that I never would have been saved if I could have helped it. And so Paul, the chief of sinners, is astonished that he's saved. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy, I sing. Now that's who Christ Jesus is. That's why Christ Jesus came. Children, that's why he was born in a manger. And this is the double commendation of the message of Christmas. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. You know, Sibs, the Puritan, said to Goodwin when Goodwin was young, Young man, if you ever would do good, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. And that's been my goal all of my life since God called me. That's what I long to do. And I truly have a fear, a good fear, that because of the influx of false doctrine and Arminianism into the church, that once again, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone is going to be eclipsed and not preached. It's happened before. It happened in the medieval period. It happened after the great Puritans preached it in England there was an influx of false doctrine and the churches were filled with preaching of morality, morality, morality for salvation. Until God raised up a voice to once again proclaim justification through grace. That Christ was the savior of sinners. A voice almost crying in the wilderness. A voice that seemed almost to be alone. And let me give you an example of what he preached. Are any of you depending upon a righteousness of your own? Do any of you here think to save yourselves by your own doings? I say to you, your righteousness shall perish with you. Poor, miserable creatures, what is there in your tears? What in your prayers? What in your performances to appease the wrath of an angry God? Away from the trees of the garden. Come, you guilty wretches, come as lost, poor, undone, and wretched creatures and accept of a better righteousness than your own. As I said before, so I tell you again, the righteousness of Christ Jesus is an everlasting righteousness. It is wrought out for the very chief of sinners. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, let him come and drink of this water of life freely. Are any of you wounded by sin? 
Do any of you feel you have no righteousness of your own? Are any of you perishing for hunger? Are any of you afraid you will perish forever? Come, dear souls, in all your rags. Come, thou poor man. Come, thou poor distressed woman. You who think God will never forgive you and that your sins are too great to be forgiven. Come, thou doubting creature who art afraid thou wilt never get comfort. Arise, take comfort. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, the Lord of glory calls for thee. Oh, let not one poor soul stand at a distance from the Savior. Oh, come, come. Now, since it is brought into the world by Christ, so in the name and the strength and by the assistance of the great God, I bring it now to the pulpit. I now offer this righteousness, this free, this imputed, this everlasting righteousness to all poor sinners who will accept it. Think, I pray you, therefore, on these things. Go home, go home, go home. Pray over the text and say, Lord God, Thou hast brought an everlasting righteousness into the world by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the blessed Spirit into my heart. Then die when you will, you are safe. If it be tomorrow, you shall immediately be translated into the presence of the everlasting God, and that will be sweet. Happy they who have got this robe on. Happy they that can say, My God hath loved me, and I shall be loved by him with an everlasting love, that every one of you may be able to say so. May God grant for the sake of Jesus Christ, the dear Redeemer, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And the voice that God raised up to preach those words was George Whitfield. And I pray he will do it again, because that is the message our day needs. People of God, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And God's people said...